Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 57, El Rio del Tiempo, where we'll be taking you back to the original Mexico Pavilion boat attraction, boat ride that is now the Three Caballeros. All right, but before we get to that, sitting in with me, as always, from his shelter in Ohio, JT, how you doing tonight? I am great. Um, I'm excited to get to World Showcase. I was just yeah. telling you guys the other day, this would probably be, if I could go out to the world and do something fun, that would be Wander Epcot. Just go there enjoy go. myself. I, I love wandering the countries, and especially Mexico. And I love the real Mexico, too, so... There we go. And a lot of these old Epcot films we've been t- showing are a lot in World Showcase. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Take me back to my childhood. That's right. There we go. And coming to us from Tampa, Florida, the new home of two expatriates from the football world, Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you doing tonight, JT? I mean, how are you doing tonight, Hal? <laughs> we've got everything messed up. Aloha. Doing fine. Doing good, fine. Good. How's it? You got the t-shirt going tonight, so it must be balmy out. Oh yeah, it's it's a lovely. It's about uh, let's see, 70, 76, 78 degrees outside tonight. Oh come on, lovely oh, man. So you only like... have about another month and a half of the indoor season. The the I mean the outdoor season, right? So, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Our, you're going indoor soon. Our winter summer will be starting up soon That's enough. That's right, exactly. And coming into us from in social distancing himself, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations from a safe six-foot distance. That's right. We're Zoom apart from each other. So, All right. Well, we're going to jump right into this uh, month here. We'll go right to the mailbag. Uh, JT, what do you got coming in this month? Boy, we are going right to the mailbag. I, you, I caught you off guard, didn't I? I know. Well, I don't know. I was going through all the mail. And I was looking at, it's been forever since we were, SeaWorld was the last episode, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was the, uh, the Good Neighbors, Good Neighbors SeaWorld we focus. SeaWorld, yeah. That's crazy. It feels like it was like four years ago, but um, <laughs> so in the mail showed. So thank you for your letters. Thank you for your notes. Uh, I appreciate all that in the mailbag. We all do. People First love SeaWorld, here, by the way, right? I mean, oh, yeah. big hits. How about all the, all the feedback we got on that episode? Yeah. Only a little bit of hate mail this time not a normal <laughs> bag of hate mail that i have to sift through so and by the way guys i just restored a film speaking of good neighbors that has circus world and a little bit of sea world on it and includes part of the hawaiian punch village in there too nice pretty cool so we'll get that out okay so the first one is from Corey crowley Corey says just discovered the podcast and i am 30 episodes in and can't thank you guys enough for the content as someone that grew up in south florida and went a lot in the mid 80s you helped bring back a lot of memories uh, Corey goes on to say that uh, their uh, current DVC members still get down there once a year and a historian of sorts 
uh, for uh, their seven-year-old child. So they, they all thank us for the content, and Corey just bought some shirts as well. So welcome aboard, Corey, and we appreciate your, uh, your listening and your support. Uh, here's some uh, some SeaWorld stuff. Uh, this is actually from Steve Peterson. Steve says he enjoyed the podcast on SeaWorld Orlando. He actually grew up in Southern California and never really knew much about SeaWorld in Orlando. Uh, he says he remembers a little bit of SeaWorld San Diego was built to encourage tourism in San Diego and to compete with Marineland, which is it was in a suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, he went uh, to Marineland a few times, and he kind of went on to compare the two to SeaWorld, saying it was impressive, had great attractions. Um, he says he thinks that's why SeaWorld purchased it in 1986 and promptly closed it in 1987. I don't think SeaWorld San Diego has ever caught on as attraction L.A., kind of like it did in Orlando. Um, so, thank you for that, Steve. We appreciate your, uh, your insight into SeaWorld San Diego, and uh, definitely... Lots of good stuff relating to the Orlando version as well. Next up, uh, this is kind of a good one. We get a lot of these. This is from our friend Scott Murray. Scott says he has some Super 8 film without sound from the 60s, he thinks, of Walt Disney World. He had it transferred to digital probably 20 years ago, and he wondered if we were interested. Now, we get these often, whether it's VHS, uh, High 8, VHS-C, Super 8, Super 8 with sound, 16 millimeter, all sorts of emails and, and people saying, are you interested in our footage? Um, you guys can chime in and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're interested in almost any footage that we'll say is Disney, I don't know what, pre-94 at this point, pre-93 yep. in that range. And, you know, especially if it uh, is something that you're considering getting digitized, you want to share it with uh, Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. Uh, anything like that, we're definitely interested in. So just kind of reach out to us and let us know what you have, maybe a, a good idea of what's on the film and uh, you know where it's at, and we'll, we'll talk from there. But it's definitely something we're, we're always curious what you have, and it could very well end up restored in, on our YouTube channel or exactly. even during a movie night. And if what he has is really 1960 Walt Disney World, that's got to be early construction. Very, very early construction. So that's something we yeah. want to say. <laughs> was your grandfather a construction worker who owned an eight millimeter camera? That's the. That's right. That's the. That's the key. Okay. Uh, next one here is from Abby. Abby wrote to us, and this is actually relating because in between our last episode and this episode, we had our Horizons night, didn't we? That was after SeaWorld, I believe. Yep. Um, Horizons Revisited release. It came up in kind of the, the group chat on there during the live stream about the GE commercial that used the Horizons footage. So Abby sent us a link to that from the 2002, I believe. Is that the right year? 2002 GE commercial where the Winter Olympics in 02. Yep. Yes, they That's were in correct. Salt Lake City. Salt Lake yep. City was 02. Okay. Um, she says the DNA sequence is at the 44-second mark, and uh, maybe GE has the source Omninax film. So I don't know if they do or not, but either way, we will put a link to this commercial in the show notes. And on top of it, if you do work for GE and you do have the source Omnimax footage, we would love to have that as well. Yeah, I took a look at that, and it definitely is the same DNA spinny sequence, if you will. Uh, definitely, definitely pretty, pretty cool. So they, they reused it. Very cool. All right. Our next one here, this is from Michael George and Michael wrote us an interesting story and I'm going to kind of paraphrase here the best I can because it's a long one. 
Um, he left a, a voicemail on this one as well. He says, the spring of 1990, he was in the college program working at Liberty Inn, one of his rotations working at the hot dog stand out in front of American Adventure. On Easter Sunday, it was quiet, and his coworker and I thought it would be a great idea to fill out a bunch of these I have an idea forms that are in the break rooms. I didn't know this was a thing, but it's to me it sounds like a, uh, a Disney version of a suggestion box. Basically, hmm. it's a legal document that they uh, triplicate and um, has a basically a, you know carbon copy and it's offered some sort of compensation based on the revenue or cost savings as a result of implementing your idea. Uh, he went on to say that he submitted an idea for the sci-fi dine-in cafe. He, uh, he says, as an 18-year-old kid, I wasn't smart about saving the triplicate form and I never really thought much about the idea I submitted. You can imagine my surprise when watching the Travel Channel a few years later to see the, the pan across the sci-fi dine-in theater. You guys know that view that they always sort of oh, do yeah. on the... Um, it was sort of in the spring of, he says, 1990. When we visit, my kids always say, Hey, Dad, let's go to your restaurant. I sure <laughs> would like to be the proje- in the project folder of imagining to see the idea forms and if it's in there at all. See, it seems like quite a coincidence. Coincidence, sorry. Uh, so thanks a lot, Mike. We appreciate that note. Um, if they did use your idea, well, it's a really good idea, and uh, too bad you didn't get a little little kickback from that one. So you do see you do, you do see a fair ahead. number of the cast members uh, who were there for a while in the '70s and '80s uh, reference those idea forms, which were throughout the the property, and uh, cast members were encouraged to um, suggest things that might make things run smoother or make an improvement to the guest experience or to the operations. And a lot of them uh, got got credit for it and, and have stories of filling those forms out and then getting a letter and a check from Dick Nunes or Bob Matheson or something saying, hey, we used your idea, great idea. All right, so very clever. Um, definitely a good idea in, a, in an organization like that where it's, you know, you the little the little guy has a voice. That's that's super awesome. I don't. Do they do it anymore? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt All it. All right. Well, th- thanks, Mike. We appreciate that. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us, end up on the show, possibly uh, podcast at retrowdw.com. We try to get to all of that uh, as best we can. If we don't reply, it's probably because we have a super loaded mailbag, but we try to reply to almost everything as often as possible. So thanks for all your letters. And Brian, I apologize. I skipped over corrections and comments. You had a correction and comment for last month's SeaWorld episode. Uh, I was disappointed in myself when I listened to the playback of the episode uh-huh. because uh, I talked about the hula pie that was, mm-hmm. uh, that was in the Hawaiian Punch Village restaurant. Uh, but I failed to mention me, the, the food historian, failed to mention that its origins are Duke's Restaurant in Waikiki is famous for their hula pie. And uh, the version in uh, the Hawaiian Punch Village uh, in SeaWorld was a butter pecan-based ice cream pie. Uh, but the one that's the original from Duke's is actually a macadamia nut ice cream pie being in Hawaii. Uh, same type of thing, giant, like, foot-tall pie like they serve at uh, the boathouse and uh you know chocolate fudge all over the pie and everything so it's a, yeah. but there is a there is a there was a historical reason why they were offering that hula pie at the hawaiian punch village and it's because you can today still get the original at dukes in waikiki there we go cool excellent 
All right, gentlemen, I think before we uh, you know, do the, the audio rewind and, and jump into this month's topic, um, you know, JT, you reminded me, we can't even remember what we did since the last time we recorded a full episode. So yes. I think we need a, a little recap here for our listeners who, who are new ones or even those just joining recently or longtime listeners of what has transpired. So, yeah, I, you, we last released an episode on March 13th, and we've been very busy then with the release of Horizons Revisited and in, in, uh, interpolated uh, HD quality, which was one of our top ever uh, viewed YouTube videos until uh, we started to release more and more from Howe's uh, archive, if you will. Um, and uh, we also did our mini episode on the uh, pylon structures in front of uh, uh, Epcot Center, the original pylon fountain, which that was great talking to Gene about that. And then we debuted Home Movie Night. We've been doing that for the past, uh, well, I think we're going on Home Movie Night 4 this coming yeah. Thursday, where we live comment. You get to see us live on YouTube, uh, provide commentary on home movies that uh, nobody's ever seen in years. haven't seen the light of the years of days. Or haven't seen the light of day yeah, in years. Light of day, and yeah, haven't seen the light of yeah. wow, <laughs> haven't seen the light of day in years. So it's uh, been really interesting. But gentlemen, I wanted to get your comments on all of the above between Horizons, the mini episode, home movie night. We've got the Easter parade. Just was a huge hit. About fifty some thousand <clears throat> people watched that one on Easter Day. I could not believe it. Our YouTube followers are going through the roof. So we thank everybody out there. But yeah, we haven't been on the air here on a podcast in a while, but boy, we've been busy. Very busy. Uh, we've been trying to fill, since uh, most of the country is is in a shelter-in-place thing for the last month or so, we've been trying to uh, push a lot of content out that's been in the, in the, in the on-deck circle, and uh, we've gotten great feedback from it. It's really great to interact with people every week on these movie nights, because as yeah. we're running them and talking... There's a full running commentary on the side uh, in the comment section on YouTube, and we get to interact with people, which is not something we get on the podcast. Right, right. Yeah, we have to save all the comments for later. I think on the upcoming one, I might try to develop our own film maybe on an upcoming movie <laughs> night. What do you think? Should we get the developer and the processor out? We'll turn the light, you know, dark room, the whole thing. I think that would be gripping. <laughs> I think we should watch a film live on a podcast and play it on the podcast while we're talking about a film that the audience can't see. That'd be a great idea. <laughs> yes, JT. That would be our own retro night. Oh, that's exactly. right. Eating, eating our own dog food. The... Eating our dog, yeah. We, <laughs> we attempted that years ago, and it didn't it work. It seems like a good idea. Well, it, it did because I think it prompted, oh, there's the dog. Speaking of dog food. Yep. You know, I, I, I think it helped us uh, reinforce what to start looking for in, in some of those films. There, but. There's an interesting thing. If you are a binge listener, go back and watch a video with our audio playing in your, your AirPods or whatever. You know, like cause right. we talked, we didn't pause or anything. I think we just let it run. Yeah, we, we played them right through so you can actually hear our commentary. So if you're bored so looking for something to do, there you go. Yeah, and if you don't feel like matching it up, just look at Home Movie Night on our uh, YouTube yeah, channel. You got it's, it's, three hours. It's of- like the Ben and Jerry's Flavor Graveyard. Here's stuff that people didn't like, but you can come and see it. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, the other home, the the home movie night uh, number four will be passed by the time this is released, and possibly uh, depending on when we release this number five, it might be coming out. So we don't know what's on deck for number five, but we can tell you that uh, number four, which we just had the other, we'll have the other night, um, that's on April twenty second. Uh, that one featured a fantastic 
film uh, narrated by a couple from Georgia, Harold and Yvonne Jenkins, uh, who just, in fact, we just turned ourselves off and let the commentary speak for itself because it's uh, just a golden 20, uh, 16 minutes of, of fantastic Epcot footage and absolutely fantastic Southern hospitality narration, I guess you could say. So, um, and we've got a lot of other great stuff coming up. We've got Fort, uh, Fort Wilderness Railroad. We've got, um, oh, how you're going to like this. The uh, Eastern Winds. We have some footage of the Eastern Winds at the dock in the Polynesian. Lovely. Which is unbelievable. I will so, like that. Yeah. Yep. For those of so, you who don't again, know, the Eastern Winds was a Chinese junk ship that mm-hmm. uh, sailed the Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake for the first seven or eight years of the. That's right resort's existence and we even have some footage uh not it's, it's pretty decent footage of a bob around boat motoring across and uh, it was actually of, going across and not it in was a... actually moving forward yes and not spinning in circles which was which was neat so so again check us out on youtube uh, retro wdw over there we've got home movie night and a uh, lot of other videos coming up too. We've got um, oh, I know the other one, the other video that How did when you recorded uh, the inf- Disney Information Channel at the resort in 1992. We put that on YouTube, and people went absolutely uh, nuts over that and putting it in the background. Some people said they played it on loops. So um, <laughs> I'm afraid to look at the amount of time that uh, people have spent watching our videos. Probably in the millions of hours, uh, as as a society, we may not get back. But at least we're providing some entertainment to you uh, during all the lockdowns and stuff. So, all right. So with that, let's move over to this month's audio rewind. Um, How you're at it again? You 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 did well this month. Um, Woo! But, uh, quite a few quite a few people got this. Uh, so let's first take a listen, and then we'll let How tell you what last month's audio rewind was. So that was uh, that was from Impressions to Friends, the the oh. on again off again movie. Now now not playing in the French pavilion. Oh, limited limited uh, viewing in the French pavilion. Limited gauge. Yes, at this yeah. point, very limited. So we do have a winner, and that's Steve Tanner. Congratulations, Steve! You're going to receive three books from Christopher Christopher Smith. We'll get that out to you shortly. And uh, how you have an idea for another, I know you, you've been doing these audio rewinds here, and um, we got something to give away before we announce your next one. Uh, I have a variety of ephemera, a grab bag mystery package, if you will, that might have all sorts of st- ticket stubs, magazines, brochures, all sorts of cool stuff that whatever we can kind of cram into a priority mail envelope and get it out to you, we'll put it in there. So a lot of neat stuff that we can can get out if it fits it ships that's right do you remember (laughs) do you remember the other one two pounds Uh, what was it uh two days two two, pounds two pounds 290 yes that's it the original priority mail yep yep if you get fit that's right and then if you fits it ships we'll get that out to you if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind be careful of the blob all right, if you think you know the answers to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to contest at RetroWDW.com. All correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to pick the winner. All entries must be received by May 19th, 2020. All right, well, it's time for this month's 
main topic where we're going to take a little bit of a stroll around World Showcase and end up at Mexico. Now, now is that your first country you go to or your last country? Generally, we go we go to the left. I, Me I will too. say, yeah, we go to the left quite often when we go in there. And I think I think that's because we know it's an easy on, easy off attraction, right? So you, and you're you're always hot by that point for some reason. I love reason. that pavilion. It takes too. twelve minutes to walk from where the Christmas tree is, right in the center, to to Mexico because it's just so crowded in that area. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We always tend to go left, um, and we're usually heading towards Italy to get lunch or something like that too. But anyway, we I digress. So, JT, as you mentioned, and I mentioned too, in some of these older films, you know, the walk around uh, World Showcase was very prominent back then. You know, a lot of people didn't take footage of Future World, and it was a different place. But uh, one pavilion that certainly has uh, not changed from the outside aesthetic and even majority of the inside uh, is the Mexican Pavilion. And, um, you know, we've had people attempt to climb it. It's had some... Don't climb Paint. the stairs. That's right. It's had some overlays and different things in the past. But, you know, for the majority, it is uh, really remains as it was on opening day. Uh, it's pretty close to its original. Is but this how- the only one that had a ride? In World Showcase? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Good catch. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, Norway yeah, didn't come around until 1985, 86. 89. Hey, well, the end of oh, 88. End of 88, right? 88. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Willard Scott. Germany was supposed to get one. They built the show right. building. Japan was Japan, Japan was supposed right. to get a, a, a an attraction. Yeah. Did not. And they were all built uh, with, with with that in mind. So, yeah, good good call, JT. That's correct. So, if, uh, and one of two boat rides uh, in you know inside of uh, Epcot as well. So, how has been doing some research, connecting to people on LinkedIn? Um, I believe he was going to take a trip to Mexico, I believe, to do some research, but the, uh, you know, the social distancing had to keep him away, and uh, we need some more travel funds for that to happen. But uh, <laughs> how I'm going to? This is your episode. You, you wrote and directed and produced this one, so you get all the credit. So uh, we will turn it over to you and provide some uh, commentary and such. But. I will say, I always love going into the Mexican Pavilion. There's something about that nighttime scene that is relaxing. It takes you worlds away from the hustle and bustle and heat outside. Um, I've always found the attraction fun uh, in both of its incarnations. I do have a soft spot for the original, and uh, especially the, the end scene, which I think we'll, we'll definitely talk about, which most, much of it remains. Uh, but I think there was a little bit of... Uh, a, cheeky characterist, uh, so, so to speak. Not talking characters in terms of cartoon characters, but uh, as a li- this, the original had a little bit of uh, old school, if you had wings, you know, character to it. So, but I will let Hal take us through that and uh, go from there. So, Hal, it's all yours. All right. Well, welcome aboard, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's true. There actually, there's there is a huge influence of if you had wings in that attraction and. Uh, that's partially because of uh, well, let's just start at the beginning. I think that's probably the yeah. easiest way to go. Um, so, a pavilion representing Mexico had been a prominent feature of the plans of World Showcase as far back as 1975, when it was a separate area from you know Future World, and then later on they were combined. So, so it, it was always kind of in mind to to have Mexico be be a part of uh, of World Showcase. Jack Lindquist was responsible for securing sponsors for Disney. Um, but Disney actually committed to paying for the pavilion regardless of his, his success or failure. So uh, Mexico was really considered to be a, uh, a critical attraction for them. Um, 
Lindquist made several trips to Mexico to convince the Secretary of Tourism to get involved with the project, um, going so far as to make a pitch to the press, the Mexican president, uh, Luis uh, uh, Escurvera. Um, does he really wanted direct involvement from Mexico? And they were very sensitive that the pavilion uh, actually represent Mexico in an authentic way. So um, they, they worked very hard to, um, to try to make that happen. Um, didn't work out exactly the way that they thought, though, as, as we'll get into. Um, Ex Extensio was put in charge of the pavilion, probably because of his, uh, his Latin heritage. Um, he initially worked with Imagineers Tom Gillian and Clem Hall and, and probably a bunch of others to do early concept art. But um, we actually see concept art of, you know, of the pyramid inside way, way back. I mean, that's that's part of the 1975 uh, concept art that's done is, is a very similar setup to what we have right now with a um, with a gallery in front and then opening up to the sort of the um, the uh, nice widespread view with the pyramid in the back. Um Early plans for the ride put a lot more emphasis on Mexico's colonial period and its 10-year revolution, which took place in the early 20th century. Uh, those plans were shown to Mexico's ambassador to the United States and a group of Mexican foreign exchange students attending UCLA. Um, you remember we, we talked a couple of times about how they went to, they had focus groups at UCLA. Uh, and same thing, they they went to, did a focus group there and... Uh, it produced a really mixed reaction uh, with that crowd. Uh, one person described it as saying there were too many pinatas, and uh, that group strongly suggested that Wed actually go to Mexico to spend time in the country firsthand instead of just you know looking stuff up in their library. So, um, so it was not a hit from the beginning. Interestingly enough, though, um, the team did not go south for inspiration, but east. Um, Existencio was involved with the Goez Art Studio uh, and Gallery in East L.A., which was the center of a growing movement within Los Angeles' Mexican-American community to take pride in its Mexican and Mesoamerican identity. Um, as you recall, in the 1970s, like being Chicano, that was a new concept, the, the pride in that. It was very pushed down. You had a few shows like Chico and the Man uh, and some other things that tried to bring that culture into the forefront and not place that as a negative, but a positive. Mm -hmm. So um, this this group, um, it's actually fascinating reading about it. Um, this art studio that, that worked out of East LA, they went to a bunch of different programs in the community that did a lot of good. They um, did a lot of education with little kids. They had a huge muraling program that they did within the city. Is really remarkable and reading all the stuff um that they were doing was really beautiful and inspirational um but just this whole concept of you know being proud of who they are and and taking that on um you know as as a distinct thing and not, and not something to push around push to, and not to say push around to to push down or like put away it's like it was it was not something that was normal at that time to be be proud to be mexican so it was it was a really great thing that they did um, and there were two other artists with Hispanic heritage and a Disney connection that were also associated with that art studio, um, Eddie Martinez and Ray Aragon. 
Eddie was a, had worked as a scenic painter under John DeCure on the production of the film Hello, Dolly. And then he later came to WED in the 70s to work on murals for the Hall of Presidents and a bunch of other projects, including the art posters for the Country Bear Jamboree. So if you think of that poster of the Country Bear Jamboree that has the Mark Davis drawing on the inside and then like all the wood stuff mm-hmm. around it. So Eddie did all the wood working kind of stuff around it on, on that poster. And he's, he's a fantastic painter. Um, the other gentleman, uh, Ray Aragon, he started with his career at Disney as a layout artist on Snow White. So he had been there an awful long time. Um, but over the years, he also worked as an art director, a production designer, and a storyboard artist on animated and feature films. So both were very experienced artists um, and both had, like I said, had a very strong connection to Disney. So uh, Ex Insensio hired Eddie Martinez for a short time in 1976 to work on new concepts for the pavilion based on the strength of a one-man art show that he did at that gallery, uh, which featured canvases expired, uh, I'm sorry, which featured canvases inspired by uh, a trip that Martinez took in Mexico with the Goez Art Studio founder, Joe Gonzalez. So um, he actually spent two weeks traveling all around Mexico, you know, painted, uh, really got into the culture, you know, discovered a lot of it for himself, but, but, you know, put this back on this canvases and that, that really caught X's eye. And he felt like, okay, here's the vibrancy and the reality of, of what we need for this project. So I'm going to get him on it. Where, where have we heard his, his name before too? Who's, Did who? Rolly work with him? Existencio. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah, sure. He's very famous, uh, as a, um, he was a longtime Disney artist. He wrote, uh, all of the, uh, dialogue for Pirates of the Caribbean, and uh, I'm trying to think the other one. I had to say his name during the Ron Schneider presentation, and I had uh, <laughs> trouble. So he did something there. Well, well, we that. asked Bob Gurr about him too, Bob and Tom, <clears throat> during their panel at Retro Magic, and Bob Gurr talked about X's background as an artist, and then Walt said, "Hey, I need music for Pirates of the Caribbean," and. He's like, well, I'm an artist. I'm not a musician. He's like, well, write it anyway. Go see, uh, was it George Bruns, was it? Or um, Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he goes over and he ends up writing the catchiest song in the world with Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Pirate's Life for Me. <laughs> and then repeats it two years later with The Haunted Mansion. That uh, Grim Grinning Ghost is his song, too. So he did a lot as a writer. And then so they got him back on, on this again. So um Early renderings and models of the pavilion show a much more extensive ride than the, what was finally built. Um, there were full-scale audio animatronic characters used throughout the attraction, including spinning Danza de los Valores, uh, Val- sorry, Danza de los Voladores performers in the early pre-Columbian scenes. That's that thing where they get up on the post and spin around. Mm-hmm. So the original idea would have had like full-size piratey, you know, pirates life-size characters in there doing stuff like that. Um, Guests would have boarded uh, Trajaneros boats, and I am so sorry for my pronunciation. I know it's going to be awful. I, <laughs> I wish I had the time to learn how to say every word properly during this. Um, those are the boats that you see in the um, Ocochipitalo canals outside Mexico City. They usually have like the flowers on them and like the big elaborate mm-hmm. like wooden things on top. So in early art, you can actually see like pictures of cast members standing on the back of it, perhaps narrating. Uh, the the boat ride as as you're going through it just in these beautiful like flower boats. Um, a lot of these blue sky components were lost though, uh, most likely because of the financial realities 
Um, in addition, the design of the building was actually locked in before the attraction design was complete. So they actually had to kind of like refit everything uh, and resize stuff to fit into that building versus, you know, designing everything that they wanted to and then, you know, having the building built around it. So they, they had a couple of constraints. Uh, definitely financial, though, because, you know, in the end, there, there wasn't a lot of particip participation from sponsors. So they had to pull a lot of the original ideas back to make it something that was a little bit more affordable. And, and that definitely, um, I think, greatly influences uh, what we actually see in the final attraction, um, which is still beautiful. I mean, it's, it still came I, up. There. I always love that it was like a, an Imagineering greatest hits because you had the... Uh, Blue Bayou Pirates opening scene where you're sailing through the restaurant and then you get inside and I mean clearly the 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 carnival scene is they pulled small world dolls and 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 repurposed them for for Mexico and there's just there's a lot of sight gags and things in there that were things that they pulled from other attractions well even the um the 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 bar where the screen follows you and you're the, 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 yep. you know that yep. that's that's pulled from what if you had wings yeah. or one of them other you know they're all yes. they're all from other things which is which makes it a lot of fun yeah and even they ran that in particular ran concurrently if you had wings was still open while Mexico was going so you could see <laughs> that same gag in two places at once which was fascinating. Um, in the end, Eddie Martinez was inspired by the Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Mexico City, uh, which contains a combination of pre-Columbian ruins, a colonial church, and modern ar architecture. So based on the, the strength of that experience that he had there, he decided that he was going to split the ride into three sections, you know, um, or three cultures, the pre-Columbian culture, the Spanish colonial, and then the modern. Um, the attraction, titled El Rio de Tiempo, which was X's title, uh, the River of Time opened on October 21st, 1982. So it took a couple weeks after the, the rest of the park opened in order to get it uh, to let the guests in. So They had to flood the canals. That's all. Yeah, sure. There's some extra. <laughs> so so here's, some, here's some like facts and figures. So the total square footage of the attraction is 87,207 feet. So it's, mm. it's a big space. Um, the capacity was 1,920 people an hour. There were 16 boats, um, 16 standard boats and two wheelchair boats. So it was one of the, the first attractions that actually you could load a wheelchair onto, which I remember my grandmother got to use that when she went to Epcot. And I, I think those boats eventually made their way over to Small World because um, they were built in a very similar fashion. Um, they had two extra boats just in case of any trouble. Um, there were 29 audio animatronic figures plus six marionettes and Brian, you kind of alluded to the use of film with the, if you had wing te style techniques. So there was 14,062 feet of 35 millimeter film and 281 feet of 70 millimeter film used in that attraction. Huh. Wow. So it was surprisingly film heavy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think where the, where the 70 yeah, was that's, used. I'm curious where that 70 millimeter film would have come in. Um, yeah, um, probably. I'm, I'm gonna guess it might have been some of the larger uh, of the dances at the beginning. So there oh, were yeah. two, right. right? You had the dancers there. That's screens. right. That's yeah. right. That would have been seventy. Yeah. So there was a lot of smaller ones, which we'll go over. But the, those, there were some decent sized screens there. So that might have been. Wait, where it was wait. Done. You mean Disney had screens before Universal? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so let's let's take a ride on the river of time. Yeah. Um, so after you enter the pavilion through a thirty foot five a thirty five foot tall pyramid in the front, the Disney guests would find an extensive display of pre Columbian contact art and sculpture. So this was kind of in the art gallery when you first walked in. Now it's uh, like Day of the Dead stuff, but originally it was a lot more serious artifacts. Um, as you made your way across the room, you walk through an opening in the wall and then down a raised ramp into the Plaza de los Amigos, which it still has that name. There's a sign hanging there that still says that today. Um, it's indoors, uh, but made to look like outdoors at night, kind of like the Blue Bayous at Disneyland, which is a beautiful effect. Um, and this area is a recreation of a Spanish colonial town plaza. Uh, it's model, actually modeled after the city of Taxco. So if you oh. ever go to Taxco, you may find something oddly familiar uh, if you visited the Mexico Pavilion. Stalls in the plaza sold handcrafted items uh, sourced by Disney buyers who visited Mexico. So originally, the, the merchandise buyers actually went all over Mexico trying to find handmade stuff. And apparently it was difficult at that time because there wasn't a lot of handicrafts made for export for the tourist trade. It was much, much smaller. Um, so they actually had to work a little bit to find people that could do that. Um, there was a store called Artisanas Mexicanas, which was inside a faux building on the left-hand side that carried a lot of uh, one-of-a-kind items. Uh, later on, it became a travel office, and I think it's a store again. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the right side, where La Cava de Tequila is, was a dress shop for women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could go get fancy dresses in there at one point. Um, Mexico City's San Angelin uh, offered waterfront viewing uh, of the Yucatan jungle and the boats gliding past in the darkness, not too unlike the experience at the Blue Bayou, mm-hmm. which Brian talked about, which which is a gorgeous setup. I know a lot of people talk poorly of that restaurant. I've had nothing but delicious food when I've gone. Uh, I love their drinks. I love their horchata. And it's just, there's something very wonderful, especially on a hot day. I'd be able to sit down in there and just, you know, watch the boats go by and enjoy you know the the coolness and see the pyramid and the volcano and all that stuff um yeah so i think it's, i don't think, I think i've ever lovely. had a bad meal there but i prefer the menu at the waterfront restaurant that was built years later um gotcha it's a little bit more traditional um you know tex-mex mexican-american you know you'll find enchiladas and quesadillas and stuff and and right the El Rio menu is a little, little more involved. Sometimes I don't dislike it, uh, but sometimes it's just a, it's an it's an easier experience out on the water. Oh, for sure. I think the food is definitely a lot heavier from a. So if you're if you're looking for something that's lighter, yeah, outside it's definitely the way to go. Um, so inside our fake Yucatan jungle, uh, it's dominated by an ancient looking pyramid. Uh, the background there is 220 foot wide so it's just a big enormous background uh there's a lot of three-dimensional trees and shrubs and rock work that makes the area look a lot bigger than it is and it's another example of like really well executed forced perspective um, am, am i the only one that just wants to get out and climb around in there no see I'm, with the lights on too yeah <laughs> the lights on i don't know if how effective it would be but it, it probably it looks terrible it looks yeah terrible but it is certainly pretty. Um, and I, I want to wade through the water. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. I love um, the the volcano. You know, off to mm. the right, there's like kind of a volcano mm-hmm. in the background. And it, it used to spew lava and like have some steam effects. I think some of that changed when they added Dr. Doofenshmirtz 
into there from the uh oh yeah yeah so i, I think they changed it up a little bit but there used to be uh, moving clouds and a lightning storm that was all done through projection effects and it was really really quite nice um so so if you go over on the left and get on your boat uh you kind of start passing through the jungle and there's this neat little native hut that you go past and a uh, a big uh, Olmec head. Now the Olmec were the first Mesoamerican civilization. They flourished from about 1500 BCE to about 400 BCE, and this is that kind of gray stone head with the um, with the tree growing out of the top of it that you see there. Um, they were once considered the mother culture of the region, but scholars are now debating how much influence they might have actually had on the neighboring civilizations. There are 17 of these known colossal heads in Mexico, mostly in the areas of Veracruz and Tabasco. Scholars currently believe that the heads were of royalty dressed in ceremonial outfits worn during that Mesoamerican ball game, which they just call the Mesoamerican ball game. So that, that thing that we've all learned about where they have the ring on the outside and you have to take the ball and kind of the sideways basketball. Yeah, so fun, funny story about that. I took a uh, archaeological class and in, in college just to, to fill a credit or something. And I remember we were sitting there and they were going through how they discovered this. And, and I, I just looked at my girlfriend at the time and said, they were just playing basketball. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was this whole rigmarole that the ball represented planets and the hoop was maybe so. But I, th- I think they were just having a good time and... Uh, you know, maybe maybe they got to uh, basketball before Springfield, Massachusetts. Did. Yeah, maybe. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting, going back to the original Epcot documents, is like mm-hmm. a lot of the current thought about these things has changed drastically over the the course of the last forty years. Um, you know, not not only from point of nomenclature, like in back then they would call the people Indians. It's like, well, now we would not refer to someone right. from those areas that we would call them either Mesoamerican or, or, you know, be more specific about the region. But a lot of the thoughts uh, that scientists had at that point about what the functions of things were has, has changed radically as, as they've learned more. So it's been fascinating to see how much, um, how much more we know now, you know, than we did then. And I'm, and I'm sure, you know, in another 40 years, we'll probably gain an even deeper understanding of all this. So, um, so back to the boat. So we're on our boat, and then we kind of enter this vine-covered opening in the pyramid complex over to the right. And inside was a mural depicting musicians inspired by the frescoes of the Mayan archaeological site called uh, Bonampak. Initially peeling and cracked with vines growing through the walls, the the mural progressively becomes less ravaged as if we are going back in time. So here we start to get the time travel uh, aspect put into this. Um, And by the time we get to the end of the tunnel, the mural looks brand new. And this was actually accomplished by having muralists in California complete the painting in its entirety uh, in its new state. And then having a different set of artists who specialize in effects painting and placemaking add the aging and the undergrowth after it was installed in Florida. So it was a really very subtle kind of effect, but it did give you that idea that, you know, you were going back in time. Um, ahead of us, at the end of this kind of tunnel hallway, we would see a stone statue of a Mayan priest, uh, probably uh, dressed to depict uh, Quezacuate, the feathered serpent god. Uh, in the front recesses uh, holding the statue, there's kind of like this burning fire pit. 
uh, with smoke coming out of it, kind of similar to the smoke effects that were in the American Adventure. So that was a, a neat addition to have then, because that was neat, because it was always putting smoke up in the room. You know, it's, in Pirates, you know, they would never actually do real smoke. It was, it was always just red lights. So that was kind of a big deal for 82. And then as we approach the statue, it begins to talk. Centuries ago, a great civilization flourished in my This advanced culture produced remarkable scientists, mathematicians, and builders of magnificent temples. So as we approach the stone figure, he suddenly changes from stone to flesh, uh, thanks to a pepper's ghost effect. And then he tells us. this reset for every boat right yes yes it would and sometimes if things if the if the boats were timed out properly you would only see that one time but if something happened where one of the boats got backed up you might catch it kind of like part of the way through or twice uh i'm sure that's happened to me before and uh in the original plans it kind of looks like the character after he does the transformation was meant to move and kind of open up his arms but in the end, that was one of those things that just got cut for budgetary reasons. So it just flipped between two static figures. Um, and which one of them now is at the fleshy version is at the Bowers Museum. There's a lot of wonderful artifacts from different uh, Disney attractions there, in including that fellow. Um, so go out and see it. So as the boat turns left, we enter a pre-Columbian city. Uh, to tell the stories of the Mayan and the Toltec and the Aztec cultures, Disney made what was then considered to be a unique choice um, to depict them with dance. Um, Eddie Martinez hired an, an actual Aztec dancer, uh, Florencio Yescas, to choreograph the dances. And Yescas's troupe not only performed them, but also fabricated the majority of the costumes, which were designed by Ray Aragon. So uh, they had just... They knew they made their own costumes anyway, so they just took the designs. Uh, the Disney department made a couple of them, but they made the vast majority of them. Um, six films were shot at the Disney Studios in Burbank on either blue screen or black velvet backgrounds so that special effects and other backgrounds could be added later. Um, each ran about a minute in time, and the dancers end kind of back in their starting positions as much as possible to make the loops as seamless as possible because these just ran in continuous loops uh, on cabinets. Uh, and I have some details about the dances, which probably don't surprise any of you. Um, of the six, there was mathematics and astronomy, which depicts the Mayans' relationships with the universe. Um, this was represented by three dancers with a swirling backdrop of stars behind them and dry ice under their feet. Um, that was the first one. Then came nature and science, which is about the relationship between man and the elements of the universe. Did I just say that? No. Yes, I did. That is a, all right. So the next one was nature's and science. Uh, dancers represented um, sort of the four elements: earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, Tonatua was the god of the sun, and Tachi Utekua was the goddess of running water. Um, I have not been able to identify the other two as of yet, but uh, it's really neat that they these people obviously did their research. Uh, in a very deep way uh, to make sure that this was, you know, authentic to what was going on. You've, you've hit on so many random words that, like, I remember hearing from various things that relate to Mexican culture, Aztec culture, like, 
and then these random words you're saying, I feel like I've seen them in the video game Zuma, where it's you, you oh, shoot the colored balls into the Aztec, you know, the different things. Oh, I it's bet a great you. game. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, I just jumped in. I was like, wow, these words are all sounding familiar. I know, that's fine. That's fine. See, well, that's interesting that it managed to, like, permeate pop culture during that time in some other ways, too. It was Quetzalcoatl, and I cannot pronounce this Tezcatloca, which is, uh, the, so Quetzalcoatl was a feathered serpent god, and the jaguar god was Tezcatloca. Um, they kind of portray this as like a fight between good and evil, but when I was reading some of the folklore, it's not quite that clear. Um, it, it's not a pure good and a pure evil, but there's kind of just but in their folklore it's like those two characters did fight so so that was something pulled from there um there was another scene of um of aztec warriors a jaguar warrior and an eagle warrior uh being given weapons to battle by a third warrior who may be dressed as a wolf this was interesting so in the actual aztec warrior culture uh the classes were actually divided up into two sections. So there were there were ones that dressed like eagles, and there was another set that dressed like jaguars. And they actually wore costuming as they would go into battle that looked like, like that. Like the jets and, and the sharks? Yeah. <laughs> and you could only become a jaguar if you had killed... No, I'm sorry. If you had captured four people in battle. It was or, considered or if by... Or handy with a knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was considered to be, uh, you were unskilled if you actually had to kill your opponent. Capturing them was actually much more important than killing them. So um, I thought that was really, really something that was surprising. Um, the biggest one was the marketplace, where there were kind of like 14 dancers on a multi-level set with a, with a king or leader looking down on them. So that was, you know, they had pots and pottery and vegetables and things that they would kind of dance around on that one. And then the final movie was uh, Moctezuma's Palace. So it depicts uh, Moctezuma, who I think we would probably mispronounce as Montezuma most of the time. Uh, so Moctezuma II, the last ruler of the Aztec, uh, and who probably looks like a, a, a court astronomer, um, watching a shooting star go by in the night sky. And I think this is a reference to uh, a legend uh, that in 1509 that ruler saw a comet, and it was one of the eight omens that predicted the arrival of the Spanish and then the end of that civilization. So that's kind of a fitting end to that, that section, scene, yeah. uh, which really does then transition into, you know, the Spanish colonial conquest, which... They obviously don't show all the blood and the gore. They just go into this very nice, you know, children. And I and I think that's why it really is about kids. There were some earlier uh, sketches and paintings done uh, depicting adults during this time. But I think choosing to go with children as the focus kind of not only lightens it, you know, for sure, but then also takes the emphasis off of you know, the killing and the upheaval and more on, you know, the period of time after uh, the, the happiness, right. certainly the lightness uh, and, you know, the integration of the two cultures together at that point. Um, so this this section is called the Festival of the Children, and it's it's meant to represent colonial Mexico and it's half Spanish, half native population. Uh, the, the audio animatronic, 
The audio animatronic figures are meant to have the appearance of paper mache, which is actually an art form in Mexico known as cartonera. So there is a reason that they are not super realistic. I, I believe, Brian, as you said, it is true. I, I think they are built on the mechanisms of it's the small it's a small world dolls. Um, but they, you know, look different and, and appropriate because of, of that art direction change. Um, there are vignettes depicting scenes of what I think are many different kinds of festivals in play. Um, the very recognizable one to us, I think, is the Day of the Dead Skeletons as a mariachi band that appear in the archway bridge going over the water. Um, but there are also other things like a boy trying to break a piñata during Las pa uh, Pasadores. Sorry, the boy trying to break a piñata, which I believe would be during Las Posadas, a pre-Christmas celebration, uh, kind of the 12 to 14 days that lead up to Christmas, much like we, what we have. Um, there is a boy carrying a Toro de Fuego, also known as the Vaca Loca, uh, which is that bowl with the fireworks around it. And there's a little girl with fireworks. And, and there's a really fascinating ceremony uh around a holiday called uh, San Juan de Dios, where uh, a little kid carries, uh, or an adult carries a bull through a crowd, and they kind of do like a running of the bull things, except with this bull spewing fireworks everywhere. There's, so, there's a great scene in Fletch, where uh, the the waiter brings him something, and he has an exchange with him, and the waiter says, muchas gracias, and Fletch turns and says, Tierra del Fuego. And throughout high school, Mr. Gant, who was our Spanish teacher, in high school, I would pass him in the hallway and I'd say, Tierra del Fuego. Right in here. It's good. Oh, that's very nice. One nice head up? Oh, thank you. I'll take care oh. of it. Give each other $20, okay? Put it on Underhill. Oh, muchas gracias. Tierra del Fuego. So, so how uh, many are wondering, when is the overlay to Coco in this scene being great? Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> There's some similarities to... There are, there are, but... Yeah. Fascinating that this is, again, if you just float through this, as, as I did for all these years, it's like, without knowing what these individual connections are, you really have no idea how much of the culture. You're like, oh, that's really right. cute. But there are actually, like, very deep references to yeah. the culture. Like, one thing that I had no idea about, which... Actually, Brian predicted that I <laughs> today. Brian predicted that I would have looked into this. I didn't even know I was going to do it. So you know, pinatas. I always think you know, pinatas. That's just you know, it's birthday parties, whatever. There's actually uh, in the Mexican Catholic tradition, the pinata has this whole deep meaning where it's actually uh, representing the struggle of man against temptation. There's seven points on the pinata. Each one of those represents the seven deadly sins. Um, uh, the pot represents evil, and the seasonal fruit and candy that would be inside are the temptations of evil. The person with the stick is blindfolded to represent faith. And then the turning and the, like, when you spin somebody around, that's like the disorientation that temptation creates. Uh, and in some traditions, the participant is turned 33 times, like one time for each year in Christ's life. And uh, it's now there was actually a pinata uh, in the pre-Columbian things, too. But of course, as tends to happen, it's like as uh, as a Christian religion comes into areas, they like take local customs and adopt right, that, it. But that's like, that's I, our, our whole basis of Christmas. As you know, Christmas was a pagan celebration that we then 
took all of the traditions and bits of it and then turned it into a Christian thing. Yeah. So when the when the participant beats the pinata, it's supposed to represent the struggle against temptation and evil. And then when it breaks, the treats coming out represents the rewards of keeping your faith. Yeah. Which just I'm you like, get a tootsie wow. roll. Who didn't know? That's great. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nuts. Um, and also, um, so in the um, there's a little band off to the right when you come in. So there's there's a marimba players at the end, but there's this band uh, with like a a tuba. And a trombone and a big drum. That's actually uh, something called banda music from the Sonola region of Mexico. And that's not all. Uh, a boy and a girl dance the jarabe, Mexico's national dance, uh, known in the United States uh, by the name of the Mexican hat dance. Uh, the boy is dressed in a traditional cowboy chero suit and the girl is in a China poblana dress. There's two boys on the left side of the bridge wearing old man masks doing the Danza de los Viejitos from the Lake Pezzacuro region. And then uh, on the left side of the bridge coming down, uh, there's a boy with either a devil or a Judas mask. And then on the right hand side, uh, there's another boy that has a red faced Moor mask from the dance of the Christians and the Moors. And then over by the uh, by the uh, pinata. There's a young girl performing with two skeleton marionettes. So marionette shows were especially popular in the 1800s and 1900s in Mexico, uh, but they actually had roots that trace back to pre-Columbian times there. This is one of those things that always, you know, people always talk about the level of detail that's in a Disney ride and how, you know, it's it's very difficult to appreciate. But I mean, this is a real case where in this section you float through here in less than a minute and they have laid out all of this stuff for and you that you have no there's idea. There's <laughs> nothing that's just there. It's all there right. for a purpose. Exactly. Um, so as we move on through here, we move into modern Mexico and it's many tourist destinations. And uh, I think it is important to try to call out and Brian, you, you, probably know a little bit more about this than I do because it just seems like this is in your wheelhouse. You know, in the 1970s, Mexico, 60s and 70s, Mexico was a huge tourist destination in the United States. Places like Acapulco, it's like, you know, even before the cruise industry got there, a, a lot of it has shifted through the 80s to places like Cancun and Cozumel, but like, well, it was... Well, and, and certainly starting in Southern California with Tijuana. I mean, the big thing was to cross the border and go to Tijuana. Right. That's where Caesar Salad originated in the 1920s at Caesar Cardini's restaurant. He created the Caesar Salad dressing. That's where nachos uh, took off uh, down there. So you had all these uh, Californians. Famous story. I know I've referenced it with you guys before. Richard Nixon on Election Day in 1960 when he ran for president the first time and lost... Took off in the afternoon, drove to Mexico for lunch, disappeared for the, the day he was on the ballot for president. It's a fascinating <laughs> story. Um, but yeah, so it had be, you know, the, the, the Mexican tourism had kind of really taken off there like a, a second post-war birth, uh, rebirth rather, uh, starting there. And then uh, and Texas as well, developing border towns in Texas and. And then you had Cozumel and those other places develop in the 60s. Puerto Vallarta was very big. Uh, the people would, like celebrities and rich people from Southern California would sail to Puerto Vallarta. Uh, so they would okay. leave the port of, um, of Los Angeles and uh, either sail to Catalina Island, which is owned by America, or uh, south into Puerto Vallarta uh, for like weekends and things like that. So 
You go like Ava yeah. Gardner would go for the weekend to Puerto Vallarta and stuff like that. So really, it should not come to a surprise to any of us then that the modern, you know, Mexico in the modern sense is is really about tourism, which, you know, as as we know from a lot of these Epcot pavilions, that that was one of the goals was to try to get more people to come and visit the country. So you, you showcase the best of the best that you have to offer. Um, and, and we shift again sort of in tonality from uh, from, you know, starting with like this very realistic uh, but ancient time to like the more small world whimsical center section with with the children and the festivals and and now we go into what really is kind of that classic Disney style of combining film projectors and uh, you know sets uh, very much in in line with if you had wings and it, and in fact I was fascinated to find out what the deal was so I, I had some email exchanges with Eddie Martinez. And he said, uh, I said, where did that come from? Was that, you know, were you working perhaps with uh, Claude Coates or somebody that kind of gave you some advice on this? Or did you inherit this from a, an earlier version of the ride? And and he told me, no, it was from Marty Sklar because uh, Marty stopped him in the hallway one day. And he was saying, you know, the budget for this isn't really, uh, it's not Pirates of the Caribbean. He's like, so there's this attraction in Florida I want you to go see called If You Had Wings, go down there and learn everything that you can from If You Had Wings and apply those lessons to your ride. So he went down and got a tour behind the scenes and saw how all the film projectors worked with the with the bin loops. And and he took those lessons and and in fact, one whole scene and integrated them into his Mexico ride. So uh, I I have from my very first visit and there's, you know, 30 some plus years ago now, uh, there are snippets that have stuck with me. The scuba diver swimming up, which is now Donald, but the original footage of the scuba diver. I mean, I just remember craning my neck every time to see that as we passed. And then the cliff diver, um, you know, and again, promoting certain things that. There were cliff divers in Mexico. Mexico was famous for its scuba diving and, and its resort towns. Uh, so, you know, the the, 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 the the markets, if you went to Tijuana, you got that, that haggling experience of the Mexican market. So, you know, it, it was a little bit hokey, but it was also very illustrative. And a lot of those Southern California Disney Imagineers that worked on this stuff, they've all they'd all been to Tijuana they'd all been to Mexican towns so they had something to draw from um uh which wouldn't have happened if you had guys in New York designing it true very true so so let's talk about where you actually get to go to because it's very specific is what's shown um so the when you first come in there's like speedboats on the right Mm -hmm. uh, with water skiers behind them that is actually in a city called Manzanillo um, then they go to Acapulco with the swim up bar, which I would love to know oh, where that yeah. is. Maybe you need to ask Eddie apparently Martinez. Aca- <laughs> yeah, I do. Hey, by any chance do you remember? Because apparently Acapulco was kind of like the granddaddy of like, that's where the swim up bar originated uh, in all its all of its different forms. So uh, that, and then there was a projector on the wall, uh, just like a slide projector of like parasailers, like girls on going by, which would kind of draw your eye over to the cliff divers from Acapulco. And there was 
uh, you know, dimensional rocks that you would peer through in order to see the film of of the cliff diver. I don't know. I don't know what Donald's doing there now. Is he? I, oh, he has cliff diving still there, right? They left the original footage in there, and then sandwiched between, he takes a dive off. And, okay. You know, ping pongs off the rocks. They yep. have him doing a lot of this stuff that the films used to. He's, he's he swims up now from the bottom, doesn't he, with his mask on? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he yes, does, do. and it's all digital projection now too, rather than uh, rather than the film projection. Yeah, it really was it. It's quite a travel log. This is really where you got that if you had wings feel. Yeah, you know, what I mean, probably the the the, the you know the, of, of all the ride, this is the most. Yeah, on the, on the right between those, there was an a uh, Danza de los Veladores with the spinning guys up on the strings. Like that was also shot in Alcapaco. And then the underwater diver was done in a place called uh, Isla Mujeres, uh, which apparently must be beautiful to dive. There's a scene. Um, on uh, at Tulum with the pyramid in the background with the, the Mayan beaches. ruins. I've been there. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's lovely. And then you go under an archway, and then you enter the marketplace that we're talking about with the duplicate scene of of if you had wings. Uh, it, they did. They did add a little something to it. There's a man and a woman now there trying to sell you things instead of just a man. And uh, I th- I think as they go to each one of the each one of the screens, I pick something different to try to sell you. So it's not like just following you with like the hats through all three three screens. This time they first they'll try flowers and then some mm-hmm. uh, umbrellas and maracas and sarapes and all kinds of different things. I always got a kick out of that, man. If you timed it right, the way that the the boat was running and the following you was great. Yeah, can you imagine how difficult that must have been? Well, you know, it's funny. I remember being on a couple times where you missed it, right? Or if the if they bumped up against the side and you hit a little resistance, it wouldn't match up with you uh, with a, with your boat. Uh, or maybe the water was flowing just right. I don't know. It, it was a, but yeah. I mean, that's not only is it getting the speed of the boat right. You don't know how those boats are going to act in the in the situation with ambient air and the the load. Um, but to, I, you almost wonder if they recorded that at multiple times and had the actors do the same shtick over and over again at different speeds, and then they picked the one that they felt would. Because you can't just speed up the film. Yeah. Now the one thing they might have been able to do is put a little bit more buffer of the blank. Because they enter from the side. That's true. So that's th- true. They might have just shot, you know, like okay, give me forty seconds of nothing here, so we can splice that in before they walk into frame. Yep. Um, but as we found from uh, our research in, in Norway, like in Norway, which was really supposed to be like a fourteen-minute boat ride, and then by the time they got it in, it like lasted four and a half minutes or something because <laughs> the water went a lot faster than they. <laughs> So they, I would not be surprised if they actually had to go back and recut that film to match the mm-hmm. actual speed of the boats once they actually got loaded and, and right, people right. on it. You just have no idea how they're going to actually yep, react. Yeah, none at all. Um, and then finally we come out of there into um, the last scene, which is uh, the um, Paseo de la Reforma in Mexico City. So it's nighttime. There are you know modern buildings all around you. There's a 20-foot high, 20-foot uh, tall high carousel decorated with six marionettes spinning happily in front of you so that's where donald and jose carioca and panchito are now the three of them from the one from japan you're talking yes yes so there was there was this large carousel 
with marionettes on it there previously. Okay. And and although the song has been playing the entire way through, the ex Sencio Buddy Baker song Fiesta in Mexico really blasts out in this section for you for you to enjoy. <laughs> You drift past Flower Laden uh, Trajanero's boats, and then up in the ceiling, what was always my favorite thing, even as a kid, was the fiber optic fireworks, yeah. um, which was awesome. That was just that was the coolest thing in 1982 to see that. Um, and then, as we exit that scene, uh, we pass by a seven foot high and twenty foot long mural uh, in the style of an artist named Miguel Covarrubias. Uh, from his 1946 book Mexico South, that kind of shows the different regions of Mexico, which they I think they updated that a little bit with the Donald mm-hmm. thing, but left quite a bit of it alone. And then it's your your visit to Mexico is over, and your uh, or at least the boat ride is over, and you're back in modern times, ready to go enjoy the marketplace. And and uh, remember when those guys would would be out out there playing that giant marimba? There were like four or five <laughs> yes. of them. I, that always amazed me. I, I thought that was the cool. I mean, I love uh, Mariachi Cobra. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, they're great. But, like, those guys on the marimba were knockout to me. It was so different. Okay, can I go back a second here? I love the when the fireworks are going off, the, the city yeah. on the right, that, like, mural-looking mm-hmm. thing that has that look of, of lighting up. I don't know if it actually was lit up, but it has such an 80s it's very, it's, Miami. It's very Mexico Progress City. You know, like is is what yes, it is. Like yeah, yeah. Pink, like that yeah. that light. A really interesting thing about the mural of of the city too is that that that's it's black lit. Uh, JT. So they use black lights with glow paint at mm-hmm. least back then. I don't know what they need now. Uh, use now. What's really amazing, and I, I've mentioned this on a previous episode before. When you're on that attraction, you've seen it many times. If you've been on a lot of times before, look off to your right. Look at the detail of the individual offices and apartment spaces and everything. It's astounding what that went into creating that mural to give it such a lifelike appearance. And not until you stare at it, do you, and look closely, do you realize how much detail it's, it, 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 I think it's one of the, one of the best murals that, that was done in Epcot. There uh, are a really lot of really good background. One of my favorite things is in there is, I, I think it's right where the diver is. There's a painting of like palm trees and the beach and it's, mm-hmm. and the water. And it's just, a, and it's that beautiful old school, you know, background painting mural style like you used to like you used to see in disney attractions or in movie backdrops and uh you just don't see that anymore i mean yeah you really don't um there's just some beautiful artistry uh throughout that even in the um even in the um the fiesta section with the kids there's actually a humongous mural that runs behind all the buildings that shows other buildings and hills off in the distance which you never even really perceive, but next time mm. go and look at it. It's it's really well done. Just yeah. that that whole section is, the whole ride really is is fabulous. And you know, I, I don't think they've they've taken away from it too much with the updates. No, no. Um, we should talk a little bit about the updates be, and why. It, it, it's interesting because the the I won't say outrage, uh, but the disappointment or or whatever you want to call it, uh, that people had when Maelstrom was replaced with Frozen 
and the discussions of adding more Disney characters to other World Showcase attractions. Uh, and there was a lot of resistance and pushback to that. You didn't really get it with El Rio. Not that people didn't love El Rio because they did, but because this specific integration of characters makes some sense and has a lot of Disney history to it. And for those of you that don't know, the history is that in 1941, uh, Walt Disney uh, went on a goodwill tour coordinated by the Department of State, by the United States Department of State through South America, Mexico and South America. Uh, there's a lot of footage. There's a there's a uh, Walton El Greppo, I think, is the name of the documentary that they made about it, which is terrific. I think it's on Disney Plus now. Uh, but it tells you all about the different countries that he visited. And what came out of that uh, in 1942 was Saludos Amigos, uh, which was where you met Jose. And then the Three Caballeros, which I think was 1944, uh, which is where you got Panchito and Jose and, and Donald. And so there is a, uh, which premiered in Mexico City, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strong basis for having those characters in this attraction if you're going to add characters to an attraction. They do, they do work, and I think the historical aspect of bringing the, the actual animatronics back from a, you know, a previous attraction, i.e. the Mickey Mouse Review... And those, those, uh, uh, I, I think we've given credit. Did Jason Grant get credit for that? I think he did for uh, the, when they redid the ride and and added uh, the three caballeros. They left the stage area. It was a projection of the three characters, and I guess they knew they were going to close the Mickey Mouse review in Japan. And so they had the original animatronics of the three caballeros that was in Walt Disney World when it opened and then uh, and then moved to Japan in the 1980s and had been running there until uh, I don't know, it was 2011 or something like that. It closed over there. Uh, and then literally one night, three caballeros, the Epcot closes at nine o'clock at night. The next morning at nine o'clock, people are riding the ride. And those original three animatronics from the Mickey Mouse review of the three caballeros are in place of the projection. Uh, and people lost their minds because it was like an unannounced thing. And it was all of a sudden it was there. And I'm pretty sure Jason is the one that answered the question. line. But they are the original animatronics. They've been even they, they've been obviously spruced up a bit in terms of appearance cleaned up. But the actual. Yep robotics inside are the original 1971 robotics. That's how well they're built. And I, I believe, too, if I'm not mistaken, those were the first audio animatronics that were actually previewed before Walt Disney World opened. There was a, an event in a tent on property, and they had some uh, of the props and different things. That Now, they could have been maquettes, for all I know, but I believe they were the actual animatronics. So they, they these might be the earliest ever seen audio animatronics and that are still running today which is pretty cool so pretty high probability that that's what they were i don't think they'd build life-size maquettes and then life-size audio animatronics. who knows no you're right you're right it was those and then like two of the an early version of the tiki bird pre-show mm -hmm. birds were yep that's what they we're showcased there, there. for yeah. sure you're right you're dead birds on top. sell that's so. the that's the moral of the story birds right. can sell <laughs> It was a it was a press preview thing, right? I think right. it was. I'm trying to remember if that one was 69. I think that either the 69 or 68. Before we move on, we also have to talk about the music in El Rio that is omnipresent from beginning <laughs> to end. So yes. that you walk out of there, 
just singing because that's what the that's what the marionettes and the little kids are dancing to in those final scenes is that joyous joyous yeah. uh music that i asked you when we were getting ready for the show was that a um was that a, a, a an existing piece or is that one that disney wrote specifically for the ride and, and that was an original song written with lyrics by ex and music by buddy baker uh done for he did that. the lyrics to that too he did good lord Look at yeah this guy. he writes he i think he read something like he wrote like six songs in his life but like every single one of them <laughs> Was Imagine like if he did a, a whole album. God. It was like a huge, he's, he's monumental like Peter thing. Frampton on Frampton Comes Alive. Nothing else ever hit that one album. So yeah, and and it like as you you know here in a lot of attractions like Pirates and Haunted Mansion and and as we talked about when we did the Epcot attractions, it's like that song gets you know remixed, reorchestrated, you know many times over and over again throughout that attraction. But even the even the pre-Columbian music, it's like a lot of it is really nice. Um, I was listening to a bit of it today and there's this really eerie kind of spooky flute music that plays when you're out uh, in the water, first getting ready to go into the time tunnel. It's, it, I mean, Buddy Baker was fantastic. So of, of course it's like, it's just top shelf quality through the whole thing. But let's admit it. They put the catchiest at the end, so you would remember it. I mean, there's no doubt. I remember sitting in the in the tunnel waiting to, uh, you know, disembark the boat, and you you constantly hear it, and it was just piped in. So yeah, they they know what they're doing. In the kids section, though, I could be wrong. I have to go back. It always just sounded like meow 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 meow. Yeah, meow, 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 meow. it was like it was like the yeah, it was like a meow mix commercial. Meow Mix brand cat food has a variety of four delicious flavors cats love. In fact, it's the only cat food that tastes so good cats ask for it by name. Yeah, yeah so it's <laughs> like you couldn't understand the lyrics. It was just this very kind of... <laughs> well, how appreciate your uh, due diligence on that and your deep dive into uh, the historical aspects of it. I never knew a lot of that history portion of it, um, Aztec and all that. Really like I said, it, bring, it really does bring new light to it. it. Makes you appreciate what's there. That it, like you said, it's just not cute dolls thrown in a corner. That there's a lot more to the society. Yeah, and so much of that is still there. I mean, so much of it survived. Uh, casts in a slightly different light now with the three caballeros, but the guts yeah. of the ride are still there. Oh, one last thing. I, I want to give a special thanks to Eddie Martinez for taking the time to answer my questions and also to author Randall Shepard of Germany for his absolutely wonderful article in the Latin American Research Review called Mexico Goes to Disney World, Recognizing and Representing Mexico at Epcot Center's Mexico Pavilion. If you are at all interested about hearing more about how that art studio in East LA uh, really worked to uh, to bring the cultural identity to uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, you know, back to the forefront, and also how that impacted the the ride at, uh, at Epcot. Uh, I highly recommend you you find that article and, and read it. It's absolutely fascinating. And uh... all right, well, uh, how we do have a new T-shirt to talk about too as we uh, close out this episode. Um, I'll let. Oh yeah. How? Uh, why don't you tell everybody about this? Because this is we we alluded to it on a previous episode, and I think we alluded to it in one of the home movie nights. But it is out there, and we've sold a bunch too. Yeah, so so one of our listeners, Reese Miles, no relation to Brian Miles. Only in my heart. Uh, that Only we in know my of. Heart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, she has been a a listener and fan of the show mm-hmm. since about the age of twelve, I think. And uh, sh- she's she's not twelve anymore, um, which is fine. She's in high school, uh, and and she has been uh, developing as as quite an artist over the course of the past few years. Um, a few years ago, when when we started doing uh, the McFarkles, that became kind of a running joke on our show. And uh, for those of you that have not listened to any of those episodes yet, uh, the McFarkles is kind of like a generic term that Todd's parents used to use when they would be on road trips for sort of like goofy uh, travelers that had like overpiled their cars full of stuff. Uh, Todd, you can tell that part of the story probably much better. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head and just didn't didn't travel well or were kind of disheveled in their travels. They, did, they didn't have the gold oh, key like, card. That's what Todd's going for. <laughs> 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 but, you know, my dad was, oh, there's the McFarkles again and going out on vacation. So, yeah, I, I mean, we, we, to your point, how we, we used it in a number of episodes a while back and uh, became kind of a running joke and especially really hit home. Uh, when we joked about in the World of Motion episode, the family going on vacation that kind of looks kind of aloof and a mess in, in their red uh, wagon. And uh, we said, oh, that's the McFarkles. So, um, so yeah, so Reese created these characters and have sent, she sent us, uh, she actually made a McFarkles um, greeting card last uh, holiday season. Uh, she did some individual drawings for us and, and the characters have evolved and developed and she's got her own look and flair to them which i which i love so she you know how said hey go go do something you know we'll, we'll put on a t-shirt and we actually had some people write in saying i want a mcfarkle shirt <laughs> i love the idea of the mcfarkles so uh reese developed it and uh, unbeknownst to us and without us asking she put, ironically put them in the red wagon as in world of motion so how you tell a little bit about how you took that and turned it into a tea so she gave me the artwork, and and I also immediately thought of uh, thought of that scene from World of Motion. So we turned it into an "It's Fun to Be Free" with the McFarkles T-shirt, and uh, it is available on the site uh, right now. Yeah. So if you head over to retrowdw.com forward slash support us, we'll take you to our T Public site. It's right up the front there. McFarkles Family Vacation T-shirt. I love it. They've got all the crap tied to the <laughs> to the roof of the car, and uh, her style is it's it's a little. It's the, the, the car's got this little bit of retro look to it, 60s flair. I love it. It's, it's really good. And and how I, I hate to tell you, her her art is outselling your camera center shirt. So be it. <laughs> and your yogurt art rock works, too. So <laughs> <laughs> she's coming up in the rearview mirror. That's Watch you know out, what? There's so. always room. There's always room for more. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you very much, Reach. I appreciate that. And I'm glad we could get that on there and uh, get, you, get you going and your art world so you're now public a published uh, artist so all right well uh our next episode will uh we're gonna get recording probably pretty soon we know we've been a little behind we put a lot of effort into the videos and films and everything so first of all if you can check us out and join our uh home movie nights those are really really cool um so you can like i said at the beginning you can watch us and watch a film you haven't seen before a home movie film and uh, we narrate it, or not narrate, but we comment on it. Most of them are, are um, silent. There's been a couple that have uh, that have some some music and different things also said along with them. 
Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, we play some, do some other silly things like playing some intermission, you know, cuts from the 1960s. So, uh, and then uh, the last one, I decided to attempt to thread a projector live <laughs> on screen with everybody, which actually, considering I didn't have a longer cable, it would have been it would have been better if I had a longer cable. But we threaded an actual Super 8 projector and showed everybody how it used to work, and um, yeah, got an idea of why home movies actually started to fail and. Uh, years ago so we had a great time but the next episode coming up we're going to do an episode on uh menus and and ephemera and various tickets and things that used to be in the parks years ago uh brochures and whatnot so we've got a stack of those to to run through and uh, jt you're going to read from burn bomb i believe about two hours worth read line by line i have burn bomb ready i have my box of ephemera to throw out there because i love ephemera it's so fun to me i actually have from the five, they've been sitting on my desk here because I've just been waiting to share them. Uh, ephemera from my, my grandfather's archive. I have Fort Wilderness passes. I have all kinds of stuff. I have the note. I think I showed this to you guys. Every site they stayed in from 1976 till 1996. He had a list. So all kinds of cool. good stuff. Cool. Excellent. Well, we will be back shortly with that episode. Uh, looking forward to it. And uh, if you can, give us a shout-out and a review on iTunes. Uh, follow us wherever you can on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and obviously YouTube. We're racking up the followers on there. Appreciate it. And uh, look for a lot of new videos coming out. And we also have, uh, by the time you listen to this, there will be a few episodes or a few uh, video clips. or Not clips. I should say full full edited um, segments from Retro Magic that will be on our YouTube channel as well. So check them out. All right. Well, with that, guys, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next month and uh, appreciate you listening in. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and RetroWDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Adios.